Science Talk will begin after this short message. Hey everyone, it's Brian Stallard and Andrea Alfano again from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. We host a podcast called Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information. And most episodes start with a big topical issue. We've talked about cancer, climate change, immunotherapy, eugenics, GMOs, and even the pharmaceutical industry, to name a few. Our mission is to show that genetic information can affect a lot of very big, important aspects of our lives. That's why it's so unusual that our latest episode starts with a much more specific subject. And in fact, it's really a story. Right, the story of how a serial killer was brought to justice, and the questions it raises about who has access to personal genetic information. More on that in a bit. In the meantime, enjoy Science Talk. Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on September 25th, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... If you would go to a health clinic in an area where things like diarrheal disease, pneumonia are still massive threats uh, to child survival, um, women will walk for many kilometers with a baby on their back to have that baby vaccinated. That's Sue Desmond Hellman. She's a physician. She was chancellor of the University of California, San Francisco, and she's now the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which just published its second annual Goalkeepers Data Report. So what's that? Well, in 2015, the UN set what it calls its Sustainable Development Goals. These are 17 broad goals for the world to try to achieve by 2030 in health, poverty eradication, infrastructure, and more. The Gates Foundation Goalkeepers Report looks at ways to achieve the UN goals and tracks the progress in meeting them. I spoke with Desmond Hellman by phone. Let's talk a little bit about the success stories of China and India and the challenges that we're facing in Africa. Absolutely. I, I think that that is one of one of the things that if you reflect on the progress the world has made over the last couple of decades, more than a billion people have lifted themselves out of poverty. And uh, more than 750 million of those were in China and India. And so one of the ways to frame uh, progress on poverty uh, reduction is to think about potential waves. So in the 1990s, there was a first wave of China coming out of poverty. Uh, and then in the, uh, the 2000s, the second wave was driven in no small part by India and so many uh, of the Indian population coming out of poverty. And w one of the questions that, that and challenges for the world is, how do we help uh, um, governments in sub-Saharan Africa create the conditions for the opportunity for a third wave um, in sub-Saharan Africa? And I think that is, in the absence of that, by 2050, 87% of the world's extreme poor will be in sub-Saharan Africa. That, that's sort of the peril. Um, but the promise is a, a, a potential third wave of poverty reduction. And for a long time uh, at conferences, I've been hearing about demographic time bombs, uh, which is really a, a kind of an inflammatory way to talk about how many young people there are in various parts of the world. Uh, the the number of people who are below, uh, let's say, 24, I think that's the number in the report, uh, is really pretty astounding, though. 
It, it is. Uh, the the yeah. estimates are that 60% of Africans are under 24. But if you go to Europe, 27% of Europeans are under 24. So that's a pretty remarkable difference. And I will say, Steve, one of the, it's interesting the way you characterize the population. Uh, I've talked to so many ministers of, of finance about the demographic dividend. Uh, the demographic dividend is you have a lot of youth. Um, those youth have uh, access to things that are positive in health and education, and that drives your future economy. Um, and so the the bottom line is the the opportunity if you have a lot of youth is that those youth have access to a healthy and productive life, and and really that's at the heart and soul of what Gates Foundation believes in. So let's talk about nuts and bolts. What do we do to try to improve conditions so that either the projections don't happen the way they look like they're going to happen, or if they do happen, the the uh, availability of people for a better life is there. Well, the, it, we think that the if your goal is to reduce poverty and and drive human capital, that health and education are two central tenets. And so the as we've approached this work in the most difficult areas of the world, you really start with the basics: um, vaccines access to uh, maternal, neonatal, and child health so that you you look at really key indicators like under five mortality and maternal death rates. So the basics are those kinds of things that people have access to vaccines, healthy childbirth. Um, when you move from there, you start to talk about nutrition so that children can have access to what they need to grow and to thrive. We want to reduce stunting and, and um, help children to grow and develop both their bodies and their brains um, well, that moms have access to, to family planning. So uh, women can have their children when they want, um, at the age that they'd like them, to have as many children as they desire. And so if you put those things together on the health front, Things like like vaccines, healthy childbirth, um, access to good nutrition for moms and babies so that she can also breastfeed, and access to family planning. And you combine with that access to education so that these kids who do have access to nutrition and are healthy have access to education, both boys and girls, um, that starts to drive your human capital. And, and in the report, we give real examples like in Vietnam that, that that actually improving their education translates into an improvement in their economy. And the girls and women have to be included. It, it, it is inarguable that if you want to drive uh, human capital development, women and girls are an essential part of that. And, and that is, that's not actually being nice or having a philosophy. That's just a fact that a healthy, thriving um, community um, requires women to be healthy and have access to family planning and healthy children requires that, that both boys and girls have access to vaccines, clean water, a healthy diet and education. You want to talk about HIV a little bit because in, in the developed world, HIV has transformed in, in the last 30 years to almost what seems to be a manageable condition in a lot of cases, but that's not true everywhere. No, and, and HIV, I think, in some ways is such a good example of the promise. Um, as, as you mentioned, in, in the richer countries, 
what what we've seen is the transformation of this deadly disease into really a chronic disease, still a big challenge and something that you'd like to avoid. But with modern therapy, you can control HIV and live with HIV. Whereas um, the same demographics that we've just been talking about, um, we, we talk about Zim Zimbabwe in the goalkeepers report. 61% of Zimbabweans are 24 years of age or younger. So these, these citizens of Zimbabwe, um, most of their citizens are entering the period of their lives where they're at greatest risk of HIV. And we know that at the height of the HIV epidemic um, in 1997, a quarter of Zimbabwean adults were infected with HIV. Um, but the, the, through really good work that's happened in Zimbabwe since 2010, the new infection rate has gone down by 49% and deaths from HIV have gone down by 45%. So I know up close and personal because I actually lived in Uganda when we saw those kinds of HIV infection rates like they saw in Zimbabwe, how much can be done if you combine in with today's world, treatment and prevention strategies. And so the, the same kinds of things that we've seen in richer countries when you use education, when you decrease stigma so people know their HIV status, and when you give people in communities access to HIV therapy and today's prevention strategies, um, you can make a massive difference. Um, and these are the most vulnerable. These are young people who are at the time in their lives when they begin to have sex. And so we know from lots of work done on therapy and prevention, and I know firsthand from living in Uganda, um, what can happen with HIV. And in the report, we also talk about innovation, which as you know, investing in global health R&D is an important thing uh, for us at the Gates Foundation. And there's two things we're most excited about in the medium and long-term in HIV. One is having long active uh, um, prevention strategies. So what's called PrEP, this pre-exposure uh, prophylaxis. If you had long acting PrEP and you could increase compliance, we think that can drive the medium and long-term prevention strategies. And then an effective vaccine against HIV could also be a, a major contribution um, to preventing cases of HIV. So we use Zimbabwe as an example because I think the promise of treating and controlling HIV is there. But the peril is that HIV is still an absolute threat in some of the most difficult situations where the young population is growing the most. You know, uh, this is not uh, directly related to the report, but what we saw with the last big Ebola outbreak was the people who were treated in the West uh, survived. Because, and the people, many of the people who were treated on site did not survive. And, and we learned that the uh, big problem with Ebola may be the availability of high-level medical treatment because uh, th that makes a difference in the mortality rate, a huge difference. Well, you're, you're pointing out something that I think is the heart and soul of both our philosophy and the goalkeeper's report, and that is equity. Um, inequity drives a number of different bad outcomes. And you're talking about inequity in terms of access to basics of like rehydration and uh, care for somebody as sick as people are if they get Ebola. 
inequity drives access to to um, vaccines. Inequity drives access to the things that um, that most of us take for granted. And, you know, some people might ask, why are you putting out a report that talks about Nigeria and Democratic Republic of Congo? Well, Ebola is a good reminder that, uh, um, you know, and we've said this since the Ebola epidemic, a health crisis anywhere is a health crisis everywhere. And so the fact that countries in Europe, here in the United States, we actually got pretty scared about Ebola um, when there were outbreaks in West Africa. And we're now aware of just within days of the most recent outbreak, a second outbreak of Ebola in Democratic Republic of Congo in an area of great unrest where it's going to be, despite these wonderful innovations with a new vaccine, it's going to be even trickier to control Ebola. And so investments in equity, investments in health, investments in education, and having a thriving population, no matter what geography you live in, is a net positive for the world. We'll be right back after this. So, listener, what do you know about the Golden State Killer? I'm asking because this murder case had us thinking. It's Andrea and Brian again from Base Pairs, and we're excited about our latest episode, which takes a closer look at the peculiar arrest of California's infamous Golden State Killer. It wasn't eyewitness testimony that reopened this seemingly unsolvable cold case. Over decades of investigation, detectives never had such a lucky break. But a break in the case did finally arrive, thanks to the rising popularity of direct-to-consumer genetic testing services. We'll finish telling this tale a little later, so stay tuned. And now more with Sue Desmond Hellman. When Gates Foundation gets involved in developing countries, how do you get local people to trust you? Ah, so that's such a great question. Um, so, so the Gates Foundation, in no small part, is a foundation that invests in others. Um, we make investments in organizations that have a presence on the ground and in the communities that we want to work with. So, so step one is we work with local governments. We work with ministries of health. We work with um, UN agencies who have a footprint already on the ground, be it UNICEF or WHO. Um, but just like is true in your neighborhood and my neighborhood, communities drive their future. And we found out over and over again, um, one of the first things to know is, and, and this is particularly true in pandemics, but it's also true with uh, polio eradication and any vaccination strategy, who do people trust? If they trust their mayor, if they trust the imam, if they trust the their local pastor, that's who you need to go to to drive particularly things that are essential in whether it's HIV prevention or preventing the spread of Ebola, behavior change. So if you want a community or a frontline community health workers to drive behavior change, it's essential to know wh where the power comes from in that community. Uh, and so everyone who's an expert on delivery knows this. And in, at Gates Foundation, a lot of our work, whether it be in health and education and agriculture, um, is driven by the local conditions and people who are experts on where local people get their information from, who they trust. Right. So you're not sweeping in a bunch of Westerners and tell everybody how it's done. 
that would be the opposite of what we should do. That would, uh, um, in fact, we're constantly learning and we're constantly, hopefully, asking the most important questions, which is, what is this country driving? I'll give you a real example. Our work in Ethiopia um, in the last couple of years has dramatically changed as Ethiopia put in place their own country's health systems transformation plan. And they, the government of Ethiopia is driving that, and we are collaborating with them in a responsive way to what their needs are. And then that translates into what communities need and them driving their what they need for their own conditions. Yeah, I'm sure you wind up learning a lot because people on the ground with limited resources can be incredibly innovative. It's astounding. Last month I was in Brazil. I was uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And going to a health clinic and recognizing what it really takes for a neighborhood clinic to serve people who often live in really tough conditions, it starts with listening and learning what their needs are. Uh, in our goalkeepers report, we talk about family planning. I think that's one of the most profound lessons that anyone um, like me, who's new to this kind of work, has has discovered. It, it turns out that um, if you'll listen or if you ask questions. Women in areas all over the world, no matter what her income is, want access to family planning. They're asking us for what you might call in the West women's empowerment, and I would call a women's right to, to choose. She wants to have as many children as she wants, when she wants, and with whom she wants. That If that's not a, a story of a, um, a woman driving her own fate, I don't know what is. So at Gates Foundation, we want her to have access to something that is available and is a modern contraceptive method that's safe and effective and meets her needs. You uh, reminded me, I just heard this yesterday, uh, you know, because the vaccines are more controversial here where we've seen the benefits of them and people forget what it's like not to have them than in other parts of the world. But somebody very succinctly yesterday said vaccines cause adults. <laughs> I think that's so beautifully said. Um, it, the, uh, in health, we often worry about uh, uh, getting complacent. Um, if, if you would go to a health clinic in an area where things like diarrheal disease, pneumonia are still massive threats uh, to child survival, um, women will walk for many kilometers with a baby on their back to have that baby vaccinated. Um, uh, at Gates Foundation, we, we think of vaccines as near miracles. And, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. For, for pennies a dose, they prevent some of the world's scariest uh, diseases that before we had vaccines, we had to worry about everything from, you know, here in America, smallpox to polio to measles, mumps. Um, and so being able to prevent those childhood illnesses that we forget, that, um, they are both deadly and cause enormous suffering. Um, it, it's, it's a good reminder. Vaccines do cause adults. I'm, I'm happy to be an adult as a direct result of vaccines. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we are, we've got about two generations now that have never seen somebody who uh, survived polio or smallpox and... You know, if, if those things were around, everybody would be clamoring for vaccines. 
Well, I think if you look at our reaction to Ebola, it's a good reminder that that we actually do care about our health and we are frightened of scary infectious diseases. Um, I, I I think it's uh, it's up to all of us who care deeply about public health um, to to keep redoubling our efforts about what it takes for people to have trust and confidence um, that those vaccines uh, um, prevent things that we haven't heard about, we haven't seen because of those vaccines. We've got about five minutes. Uh, what, what do you want to talk about that I haven't brought up yet? Well, I think that one of the, the trends that's the most exciting that we talk about in this report is moving from something that in the, the Millennium Development Goals or the MDGs that were timed for 2015 to now the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030, we're not just talking about survival, we're talking about thriving. And um, uh, uh, it's estimated now that about a third of children in Africa have stunting, which is being too small for your age. Um, we've seen firsthand, and, and in the last goalkeepers report, we talked about Peru, where the government um, reduced stunting by more than half in just eight years because of nutrition interventions. So I think that's the the exciting thing about knowing about the importance of health is moving from let's just make sure that children survive to their fifth birthday, much less you know their first birthday to what does it take to have healthy, thriving children who can learn, who can prosper in school and drive the future for their, their communities and their countries. And um, we increasingly are moving from that survival to thriving. And I think that's exciting. I think that's where um, the youth becomes um, your potential future for your country. The people who will come up with the next innovations, the next internet, the, the next space travel. I don't know what it'll look like, but I know that investing in children thriving in their health and education is a, is a huge positive for the world. And if their body is stunted, their brains are stunted, and they're not going to be as smart and as creative as maybe they would have been. You know, everybody deserves to have a chance to learn and to be healthy. And so if their body is stunted, that says something about the, not just the development of their muscles and their, their bones and their legs, but their brain. And so that it is investing in nutrition and investing in children thriving is is frankly a direct investment in human capital, in in knowledge development and to, to their opportunity to learn. Let's real briefly talk about some of the agriculture work. You know, the work we do in agriculture, I think, is part of the, these countries transformation where it, it starts with uh understanding about soil health, understanding about climate change, understanding about how farmers thrive, and gets to how countries uh, develop from low income to middle income. And, and there you go. Um, with, our, with our remaining 90 seconds or whatever, um, would you like to briefly talk about Hans Rosling? Oh, that would be a pleasure. So uh, one of the the really, really sad events for the world in this last year was when Hans Rosling passed away. And, you know, I love public health and I love numbers and statistics and data. And yet I am fully aware of how dull that can be for students and for learners. And if, if people read just one book this year, they should read Factfulness because it's a beautiful description um, of why Hans Rosling um, made such a difference in the world. He, he literally brought to life what could be um, uh, cramming numbers in your head 
and and made all of us feel a lot smarter and a lot more aware of how much it matters for the world that we get those numbers right. And I was fortunate enough to attend a lecture he gave where he displayed some of his animated charts and uh, they're they're just they bring so much information like directly into your spinal cord past your frontal cortex it's just great stuff well it's not just the charts as you know having seen him in action i mean i i would call him i don't think it's an exaggeration the pt barnum of statistics he yeah. he just his enthusiasm for what was under the charts and the numbers and his belief that if we understood the world better, we would be smarter and better able to enable everybody to care about the right things. Uh, it, it, it literally was contagious. And his book again is called Factfulness. Factfulness. Yes. Great. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Great talking to you too, Steve. I'll be back in a moment. Hi, Andrea and Brian from Base Pairs here, one last time. And that lucky break that led to an arrest in the Golden State Killer case? It wasn't exactly luck. Genetic testing has come a long way, and in some ways, law enforcement using it to their advantage was an inevitability. Tune into Base Pairs to hear from the founder of a service that helps fill the gaps in family trees, the same site that unknowingly helped track down the Golden State Killer and then hear from a pioneer of genetic sequencing technology. He explains how we got to this point and what today's technology means for our personal privacy. His answers may surprise you. We'll wager you won't find these stories anywhere else. So check out Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Find us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out the article on how the 7 billion people on the planet actually contribute to the way the Earth wobbles on its axis. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 